Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. If you look at the, the bigger picture about what the Chinese Communist Party wants going down the line a few years, they want global dominance. They want to supplant the U.S. and they want to supplant the EU as, as any kind of superpower. They want to be number one and the only one in the world. And if you look in the bigger picture, that's, that's really bad for everybody. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political, and social upheaval, life on planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. Global domination, that's the long-term goal of communist China, and it's probably no surprise to many, but the implications could be far-reaching and damaging for America and other nations, according to analysts. You just heard Will Coogan, a China analyst in the know. He's managing director of the recently formed American Security Institute here in the US. And he has lots to tell us in my interview coming up. And what we've seen is uh, more and more reports coming up, more and more evidence of how the Chinese have uh, essentially twisted the arm of Hollywood into not making anything that might be critical of China even if it's truthful. The American Security Institute was created to educate Americans about Chinese influence in the US, from Hollywood and entertainment to diplomacy and spy networks, religious freedom, and the dangers inherent in our trading arrangements with China today. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Over in China, they now have 600 million cameras with facial recognition technology. And what they do with that is they can track people, track their movements in public, and all automate that kind of stuff through a database. Giant surveillance state. And the Communist Party, again, it's all about control. You know, they want to have maintained power, maintain control over the population. There's lots up there on the website of the American Security Institute. Go to ChinaOwnsUs.com. ChinaOwnsUs.com. How about this from the group? 97% of antibiotics in the U.S. come from China. I'm probably okay to have one more drink before I drive home. I'm probably okay. I open the window to stay alert. Probably okay. I just popped some gum in my mouth. Step out of the car, please. I probably made a mistake. Probably okay isn't okay when it comes to drinking and driving. If you see a warning sign, stop and call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzzed driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Well, it's just grand to have you join me again. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. My guest is Will Coogan of the American Security Institute, which is telling Americans what they need to know about China's influence in the US. Well, we got going on a most topical note. But let's start with uh, what's on everybody's mind right now, which is the, the coronavirus, which you know originated in China earlier this year and made its way around the world. Now, uh, let me stop you there, Will. You're convinced it happened and emanated from China. Yeah, I don't think there's any disagreement on that. I think there's debate about which you know, where exactly it came from. Did it come from a, like a, a live market with animals or did it come from a, a lab in Wuhan, like a bioweapons lab or a bioresearch lab? There's some debate about that. Uh, I, I've seen, you know, evidence presented that supports different arguments there, but 
Nobody's saying it didn't come from China. Everybody agrees, yeah, it came from Wuhan, China. Okay, well, take us through all of that. Yeah, we, we had this this global pandemic that we're in the middle of. What was really concerning about this is, okay, so, you know, pandemics, you know, disease spreads around the world. You know, we have international travel these days very, very easily. You can hop on a plane and be halfway across the world in, you know, 16 hours. So we have all this international travel. But what was really concerning for us was you look at, okay, well, where do we get our personal protective equipment, the big face mask stuff, face masks and other equipment uh, that we had a shortage of a few months ago uh, that was in short supply? Well, a lot of that stuff come from China. And so we had a virus come from China. And then at the same time, you know, we had the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party that runs China. They were playing games about where it came from and how what they knew about it and that kind of stuff. At the same time, they also had a huge market share and huge control over who could get personal protective equipment that suddenly was very, very important for public health for stopping the spread of this virus. In fact, we had some issues with China holding up shipments of personal protective equipment for export to other countries. And we also, some of the equipment they did export was very faulty. The Europeans found it, Spain and other countries found that the shipments they got from China, these masks didn't meet the standards. And then you look a little bit deeper and we find that there's actually a report that came out from the Department of Commerce that about 97% of, of antibiotics in the U.S., come from China. So all of a sudden, okay, we have a global pandemic we're trying to deal with, and we're very heavily reliant on this country that we're finding out more and more is run by a government that is not really our friend. And when um, stuff hits the fan, when it's a crisis, you know, they look out for their own interests, but they're not necessarily going to look out for the U.S. interests or European interests or anybody in the rest of the world. And so you know, we found ourselves in a strategic corner there. You know, it said, hey, wait a second, uh, we're trying to, to battle this pandemic and protect people, protect our own citizens, but we're relying on these supply chains that are in China. And we have no control over that stuff. The Chinese Communist Party does. And if you look at the, the bigger picture about what the Chinese Communist Party wants, you know, going down the line a few years, they want global dominance. They want to supplant the US and they want to supplant the EU as, as any kind of superpower. They want to be number one and the only one in the world. And if you look in the bigger picture, that's, that's really bad for everybody. You know, people started saying, hey, let's start looking at how we take some of these supply chains back from China. And then you start looking at, from there, you go out and you look at, well, where else, you know, are we overly reliant on China for stuff? And, you know, we're not talking about, you know, the manufacture of toy cars or squirt guns. You know, I don't think people, that's not really a national security threat if, if that kind of stuff is made in China. If they, if they stopped exporting that stuff tomorrow, it wouldn't really affect anybody here. But if, there are other things that we are very heavily reliant on China for on the, on the supply side. Uh, one big one, it would be rare earth minerals. And so these are minerals that make our smartphones function, electric cars, you know, lithium batteries. It, it's these minerals that are, are very rare, you know, they're rare um, in the name. So they're, they're not very common. It's not like iron or something that, you know, everybody can, can mine around the world. But this is stuff that's very vital to um, not just our, our modern technology as consumers, but also our defense technology as well. You know, they, they make the microchips function in our military equipment. And so again, 80%, we found 80% of, of uh, our imports of these rare earth minerals was coming from China. And we produce very, very little, almost nothing here in the United States. So again, we're very reliant on China for this very important equipment. You know, we started saying, hey, there needs to be a big conversation about where we are overly reliant on the Chinese for, because at the end of the day, if you look at some of their, uh, what they want, their goals, their stated goals as a, the Chinese Communist Party, they are very you know, threatening to the United States and we're also, we don't want to be at their mercy. 
And we right now we kind of are. Well, don't we have trade deals with China? Don't we have a certain element of diplomacy going on, a certain amount of friendly exchanges? Chinese invest in America, open businesses here, some get visas. Some people listening to you will, will say, wow, you're getting carried away here. Well, you're right. We do. We had this philosophy of, of having open more and more open trade with China over the past few decades. And in some ways that's worked out, but in some ways it hasn't. And I can touch on a couple of areas here, but let me just let me just say this. You know, in terms of trade deals, they're they're just pieces of paper. You remember, the Chinese Communist Party had an agreement with the UK that they were going to have Hong Kong be an autonomous region for another few decades. And what have they just done? They basically just tore that up and said, you know, we're going to pass this law, get rid of their autonomy, and basically suppress the pro-democracy movements we've been seeing in Hong Kong over the past couple of years. You know, the, these trade deals are great if it's the U.S. and the U.K. or the U.S. and Ireland or the U.S. and France. You know, these are trustworthy countries, but the Chinese Communist Party has time and time again showed it's not very trustworthy, not just on issues like Hong Kong, but also on issues with business dealings with American firms. You know, they commonly steal technology from, from firms that, that set up shops in China. They will also require them to have forced technology transfer. So, you know, if you're a, let's say you're a technology company and you want to manufacture something in China, they would say, well, you can't have your own firm. Uh, in China, it has to be 51% owned by a Chinese partner as part of a joint venture. And as part of that joint venture, you have to give some of your uh, proprietary and sensitive technology to the Chinese partner. And so they, they've used that over the years, that kind of manipulation of, of markets to boost themselves. And in the long term, what they want to do, which is basically what they said, is be the number one in these technologies. And they want to get there by essentially ripping off foreign firms and then kicking those firms out later when they don't need them anymore and then solidifying their own position as number one. Now, most nations try to promote themselves in other countries uh, through cultural exchanges, and it's all pretty benign and favorable. But you're saying that China wants to influence American society and other societies in a way that's not benign, that we should be concerned about. Yeah, very much so. And look at, I'll give you one example here. Look at Hollywood. So the Chinese, a few years ago, the Chinese premier came out and he said that he wanted to see more soft power from China projected across the world. And so, you know, hard power would be military power. Uh, but soft power is essentially uh, influence, you know, influencing how people perceive China. Here's one way they're doing this. It's through control and influence in media here in the United States. So a few years ago, China bought AMC Theaters, which is the largest movie theater chain in, in the country. And then AMC then bought out Carmike back in 2016. Uh, as a merger. So they again, this company, which is owned by the Chinese, now controls the most movie theater screens in the United States. And the Chinese also bought a production company, uh, Legendary Entertainment, big, big, multi-billion dollar production company uh, in Hollywood. And what we've seen is uh, more and more reports coming out, more and more evidence of how the Chinese have uh, essentially twisted the arm of Hollywood into not making anything that might be critical of China, even if it's truthful. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Richard Gere is a very famous you know, actor, uh, I imagine you're familiar with him from a lot of movies, yes. Pretty Woman and so forth. Well, he basically has been blacklisted in Hollywood, and he said it's because he made a movie back in the 90s, Red Corner, that was had a plot line very critical of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, about how they some people in the party had set him up for a murder, uh, and that he was, you know, the plot of the movie is he's able to figure it out and, and eventually be exonerated. So that that alone, again, the Chinese said, you know, if you're involved in this kind of movie, if you're an actor, producer, director, they they have a blacklist of this stuff. Now, now here's how they kind of enforce this. American companies, you know, obviously they, they produce movies for American audiences, but they really want to access the Chinese market. 
know, the Chinese market is now just as big for, for theater goers as it is in America. But in order to access the Chinese market, the Chinese government has control over that. They have a, a film bureau, a government film bureau that censors films and uh, picks and chooses which films it will lie, it will uh, let in every year. Now, only about 34 films from foreigners are allowed to be screened in China every year in the big box office. And so that's, that automatically makes it very competitive. And so what, these, what all these movie companies in America are afraid to do is do anything that might offend the Chinese because, you know, for them, their bottom line's at stake. A lot of their profit might be at stake if they can't access this. And so what you're seeing is films engage in self-censorship. This is according to people in Hollywood. They, they engage in self-censorship to avoid offending the Chinese. Another example might be uh, Top Gun. So you remember that movie from the 80s, Tom Cruise? They have a oh, remake. Great movie. Yeah, great movie. I just rewatched it last weekend. It's like, <laughs> I know, great movie. But they have a remake coming out with Tom Cruise, and somebody noticed something in the trailer, the new tra- the trailer for the new movie. So back in the, the 1985 or 86 Top Gun, the original Top Gun, uh, Tom Cruise's jacket has the flags of Taiwan and Japan on his jacket. And in the new version, those are gone because that, you know, Taiwan is a very sensitive issue with the Chinese Communist Party. You know, they think it's a part of China and Taiwan is, it says, hey, look, we're our own country. And Japan, of course, they have a bit of history going back to World War II, not, not very friendly in the Chinese Communist Party's eyes. Again, even little things like that. And they, they also, they've been reshooting movies. They've recut scripts. Uh, the Red Dawn remake that came out a, about eight years ago originally had the Chinese People's Liberation Army invading the United States. Well, China didn't like that. So they rewrote the entire movie to make it North Korea invading the United States. So there's, there's more and more evidence of essentially Hollywood kowtowing to the Chinese government. And that really, you know, that's bad for our own, I think our own knowledge. You know, if you want to make a movie, again, a truthful, let's just say you want to make a documentary about the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989, where the Chinese government killed thousands of pro-democracy people in Tiananmen Square in Beijing. They had a huge crackdown. You're not going to get that movie made through any kind of mainstream film studio in, in Hollywood. They'd just be too afraid because they would immediately get blacklisted. You know, same thing if you did a documentary on what just happened in Hong Kong this year. It's not going to happen. You're not going to find that in mainstream Hollywood. People are just too afraid of the Chinese. Uh, it, it's a problem. It's it's essentially the Chinese are, are wielding huge influence over what we're allowed to see. It would be interesting to see what's on the movie list and screens in China. I'm sure there are some movies, as you pointed out, are completely off limits. That's sort of extraordinary because you take the United States for all its faults, it, it's a land of freedom and free speech. You just look at the movies that get rolled out. You look at the cable shows on the left and right. People can speak their mind. That doesn't happen. And that's not permitted in China. No, you know, when I was living over in China, so I lived there uh, 2005, I studied there, and then I lived there in 2008 and worked there. The internet censorship, so they, you've probably heard of the Great Firewall of China, which is their big government firewall of the internet. And what they do they will censor what you're allowed to, to see on the internet, websites you're allowed to go to, as well as you know, message boards. If you want to leave comments on, on message boards, they have government censors going over that stuff, and they will, they will eliminate comments that are, not, uh, that are politically incorrect for the Communist Party. So when I lived over there, YouTube, Facebook, those kind of websites, you weren't allowed to go there. They were just blocked. And it's really strange. That kind of censorship goes on. You know, the, the Communist Party, there, there is no free speech. There's no right to assembly or public protest. So any kind of social media website like a Twitter over there, anything where you might be able to disseminate information that's not government approved, that's not, you know, the media is totally controlled by the government over there. If you want to disseminate information that goes against the party line, it's very, very difficult to do that over there. 
And if you get caught, it would be some very serious penalties. What about currency manipulation and trade arrangements? Are they on a very poor keel between China and the U.S.? We hear about it, that China manipulates their currency. They do, and, and that's kind of a, an economic defense on their part. What they do is they, they essentially uh, artificially devalue their currency versus the U.S. dollar. And the reason they do that is that they want to keep their exports up. They want to keep their exports because that's a huge part of their economy is manufacturing for, for foreign countries. And the, the issue there is that's actually a defense for China. Obviously, from, from a U.S. point of view, you know, if you want to manufacture goods here, that's, that is helps stimulate the offshoring of jobs from the U.S. to China. So that's, that's an issue there for us. But it's also kind of a soft spot for the Chinese because there actually is quite a bit of, you know, the, the reason the Communist Party can maintain power is because for many, many years, they have been a growing economy. And part of the reason they've been a growing economy is it, it helps to deflate your own currency against the U.S. dollar just to keep stimulating these exports. If that went away, if they, if they played on kind of a, a level playing field in, in an open market on the currency side, they would become less competitive compared to, say, in India uh, or some countries in South America or maybe Southeast Asia, and they would lose some business there. Lost jobs is bad for the Communist Party because it foments unrest and disapproval of the government. So th- there's, a bit, there's a lot of politics at play there. And again, it's, it's all about, at the end of the day, a lot of this stuff is just about the Communist Party maintaining power of China and then uh, growing its power as well, not just in China, but also globally. Well, what are some of the immediate goals the government in the U.S. should take to rebalance the arrangement for a reset? Well, I, I think you know, the, the administration came out and they said that they had, had some kind of deal with uh, Kodak to start manufacturing pharmaceuticals here in the United States. I think that's a great idea. The, the idea of bringing jobs back you know, from a Chinese supply chain, either bringing them back to the United States or shifting them to other countries that are more reliable and friendly to the United States, like India. You know, India is the world's biggest democracy. Again, huge population, big manufacturing base. They're not, there's not the same kind of, um, shall we say, strategic uh, global 21st century competitiveness going on between India and the United States like there is with the Chinese Communist Party. So that's one big thing is, is looking at this kind of stuff and saying, hey, where can we make changes that, that make our own uh, manufacture of, of, again, critically important goods more secure? Again, if, if people want to make toy cars in China uh, and have a supply chain totally reliant on China, and the Chinese cut that off, well, it doesn't really affect anybody here. It's not a big deal. But antibiotics, way bigger deal, obviously, if the Chinese were to, to shut off that supply chain. And I think the, the, the second thing would be recognizing what the Chinese are up to in a broader strategic and global thing. And that's a little bit difficult here in America because you know one big difference between, between us and China is we have a presidential election every four years, and the Chinese don't really have elections. They just have a party in power, and it's all insider trading. And if you don't like them, too bad. So what the government in China has said is they have a policy called Made in China 2025. If you want to read more about it, you can Google it. But, but here's the, the nuts and bolts of it. They've identified 10 uh, technological fields where they want to be the number one leader in the world by 2025. This is stuff like robotics, artificial intelligence, ocean engineering, things like that. So, so high-tech, forward-thinking technologies. And what they're doing is they, they are trying to have the rest of the world relying on China Versus the other way around, where China has historically been somewhat pushed around, you know, the past couple hundred years by Western powers and others. But the problem with that is, again, you have a very hostile Chinese government that is, again, a communist government that does not believe in freedom, does not believe in human rights, regularly violates human rights. And so if if that country, that that communist party becomes more and more 
uh, powerful and can control technology, that's bad for everybody around the globe. I mean, you wonder, can you believe a lot of what comes out of China in terms of data? I have to assume they're facing or will face a demographic time bomb with their one-child policy for so many years. I think you're right. And that's that's probably why they rescinded that policy a few years ago to give it more flexibility. Uh, but you're right. I mean, that, that policy, you know, originally they had that policy because they were trying to manage a country of, of many, many people you know, back, let's say, 50 years ago. And these days, they, they kind of realized, hey, you know, what, maybe that helped us manage some things to control our population growth and our consumption. But yeah, it, it leads to issues like you just recognized about a demographic time bomb that could that could certainly hurt them. So, you know, I'm not going to say that China is, is somehow invincible. It's certainly not. They have their own problems and, and they do have many problems. But at the same time, we, wanted, we don't want to lose sight of the bigger picture of, of where they are trying to head and where we can kind of. Uh, compete with them so that they are not the the lone superpower in the globe. Yeah, we're really talking about fair trade, fair bargaining, fair arrangements. The Chinese are spread out around the globe in terms of investments today, right? In road building and capital programs in Africa and other nations. That's massive, apparently. It is. Yeah, it's called the Belt and Road Initiative. And it's essentially what you just described. It's they've gone out to a lot of countries in Africa and Central Asia and they've tried to expand. It's, it's about expanding China's sphere of influence, but also it's, it's about, again, uh, political and economic strategy. So what they've done is they've gone out to these countries and said, hey, we'll build you an airport. Uh, we'll build you uh, some shipyards. We'll build you a military base, perhaps. In, you know, we'll front you the money. We'll be your bank for this kind of stuff. Well, what happens? There's always strings attached when it comes to the, the, you know, the Chinese government. And so what these countries have found is all of a sudden they have uh, huge amounts of debt or they've leased some stuff to the Chinese, let's say the Chinese military, and they can't get out of it. And so all of a sudden, they are, they are then sort of at the mercy of the Chinese. They, they are now under the Chinese umbrella. China, China kind of has their, their hooks in them. The Chinese Communist Party does. And they can kind of twist that relationship and use it for their own ends. So I'll give an example. A large part of what the Chinese have been doing over the past couple of decades is trying to delegitimize Hong Kong. Uh, I'm sorry, excuse me, Taiwan. You know, Taiwan was known as you know, Chinese Taipei in the Olympics for many years, and they were kind of recognized as their own country by, by many other countries in the world. If you look at that over the past few decades, the number of countries recognizing Taiwan has steadily decreased. And part of that is when the Chinese can build those kinds of um, economic relationships and make them a little bit one-way relationships, they can then twist the arm of these countries and say, hey, you know, there's a UN vote coming up, and we want you to vote against the U.S. on this vote, or we want you to do X, Y, and Z, or not recognize Taiwan anymore. So there's always a political goal in mind uh, that the Chinese government has when they do these relationships. And again, they've, they've kind of you know, sort of sweet-talked some of these, these countries that, uh, into doing stuff with the Chinese. And it's kind of like the old saying we have in America about a roach motel. You can check in, but you can't check out. So it's, it's that kind of, again, with the Chinese government, there's always a little, there's always an edge to it, a little hidden agenda there that they have. And we're seeing more and more of that around the country through that, that Belt and Road Initiative. How do Americans generally view China? More and more negatively. So Gallup has been tracking the public opinion of China. And, and certainly, I, I think they released a poll in May of this year, so two months after the coronavirus came from China. And as you'd expect, pretty negative. I, I think it was in the 70, 70-something percent of Americans had a negative opinion of China. So certainly, public opinion has been against them. It was, it was pretty negative before it hasn't been positive in probably about 15 years where it was kind of, you know, level and neutral with maybe 40% public and uh, of the public was positive and 40% of the public was negative. And then people, you know, the rest were kind of undecided. You know, there's been a lot of reporting in Western media 
about some of the human rights abuses that have been going on in recent years, not just in Hong Kong, but the, you know, recently we've, we've seen in, in northwestern China, the, in Xinjiang province with the Uyghurs. And the Uyghurs are an ethnic minority. You know, ethnically, they're more Central Asian than, than they're not Han Chinese. And the government there has been forcing them into re-education camps and labor camps. I mean, these are huge human rights abuses. There's a story I saw that came out last week about how the Chinese government is forcing Uyghurs to get uh, forced abortions. So there's, there's oh all, my it's terrible it's what they're doing over terrible. there. It is. And it's frankly, the, the, I hate to say this, but when I was over in China, basically, basically it's about, they want to have China as much Han Chinese, Han ethnically Chinese as possible. And so when I was there, this is in 2005 and 2008, Tibet was the big issue. And you know, it's still an issue today. Um, you know, Xinjiang is, is certainly a bigger issue on the front burner. But back then, what the government was doing, and this is under a different president, Hu Jintao, they were basically paying Han Chinese to move into Tibet. And the idea was to dilute the local population um, by moving Chinese people in there. It would dilute the amount of ethnically Tibetan people there. And therefore, they couldn't organize as well. They couldn't protest as well. It's great to think about. We don't have those kind of policies in America oh, or in it's Europe. It's amazing there's not more international outrage. Yeah, it is. But again... It's it's all about censorship of, of media. When I was there, you couldn't go to Tibet. Uh, you had to get a special, essentially a special stamp on your passport, special permission to go to Tibet if you wanted to visit there. And of course, they were very, very sensitive about that because they have their own policy and they don't want people to know about it. You know, they, they view Tibet as you know an integral part of China historically, and they don't like they don't want the idea of a, a, a Tibet country on its own, uh, just like they don't want the idea of a, a Xinjiang country on its own. You know, they that's that's their point of view. That's their policy. And, and you know, they they will do some very, I would say, evil things to 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 try to get there. Um, things that would appall people. So there's not much religious freedom in China. We know the Catholic Church has a sort of an underground church. It does. Um, you know, when I was in China, the, there were government sanctioned churches and then there were underground churches. And uh, I visited some of the government sanctioned ones in you know, they had sort of an English language mass when I was in Beijing at, at one of these churches. And, you know, it's, it's all about the subtle differences. So here's an, here's an example. Um, so I went to mass at a church in, in Beijing. They didn't, they were not allowed to have a picture of the Pope there because the Chinese are very sensitive about any kind of people having any kind of leader who's not the Chinese government. This is 2008. So, you know, we, they, they were a little bit more hands-off with the English language foreign masses. Like we had a little group there and there were some people from France who were there. We had sort of like a little charity that we had set up. We'd do some volunteer work on the weekends at a local orphanage. But again, it was, it, like if you want to make a donation to the church, obviously the government wanted to know exactly how much you were giving and exactly how much that was being used because they were very sensitive that there might be any kind of, you know, money flowing through a church that they didn't know about. You know, I mentioned that they're very sensitive about the idea of a pope they don't like, uh, they, I mean, they don't like the idea of God. Officially, the, the Communist Party is atheist. Um, and they had a huge suppression of religion when they took over in 1949 and after that. They kind of allow it, but they don't like it. Uh, and the underground churches, a lot of them in Beijing that, that I heard of, I never went to one, uh, but they were, they were usually affiliated with Korean expats uh, who were Christian, uh, not Catholic, but just sort of evangelical or, or non-denominational. Yeah, they, they had sort of secret Bible studies. And if you got caught at one of those, you could... I mean, if you're a foreigner, they'd probably just kick you out. But if you were a Chinese uh, national, they would probably throw you in jail. So are there any real functioning parishes and evangelical and Protestant churches and other religious faiths with established 
buildings. In, in, in when I visited Hong Kong, and that was in 2008 as well, um, there were, but again, it was you know British colony for a long time. So the, the the churches there, the Episcopal churches there, were much more established and you know long established there. And Hong Kong at that point, again, the the, the mainland government still kind of held to its agreement of letting Hong Kong kind of do its own thing. Um, that has now changed, of course, in the in the past few months. So Hong Kong was sort of a, a sort of a separate idea, but on the mainland, again, it was it's they they had the churches, but there's always restrictions on them, especially if you are a Chinese national uh, about going to these services. You know, expect you know if you were in the pews, I would expect a significant portion of, of the other people there work for the Chinese government just to keep an eye on what was being said and who was going there. American businessmen and expats in China. Do you have any warnings for them about how to conduct their affairs? Well, I, I think a lot of the warnings are already pretty well known uh, by people in the business community. It, it's gotten to the point where if you you know don't take your smartphone if you visit China, because as soon as you land and connect to any kind of network, you, they will try to hack it and just kind of just to poke around. It, it's it's kind of strange to think about, but you know China is geographically the size of the United States, but it's got five times the population. Uh, and it's got a huge, huge intelligence apparatus in their government that basically these people just go around all day and they look for people saying things on the internet that are critical of the Communist Party and they flag that stuff. They will remove it and try to figure out who said it. And they also have people just go around and leave all these kinds of ridiculous pro-government comments you know, because they work for the party. And so the kind of gamesmanship that goes on over there is very strange to think about is when you experience it. But from an intelligence point of view, I'll give you a couple examples. Um, I was taking a train from Hubei province, which is sort of South Central China, uh, where I, I ran a, a summer camp. I was taking a train up to Beijing. This is summer of 2008. And so it was right before the Beijing Olympics happened. Now, I had been living in Beijing before that for about six months. And I just went down for the summer for this little camp. I went back to Beijing. And so on the train, we got stopped by secret police. And they said, hey, let me see your work permit. And let me see all your paperwork to show that, you allow, you know, that you're supposed to be in Beijing. I also had, we also caught a guy following us one time in Beijing. Frankly, we caught one guy. We were probably followed probably every day. We weren't looking for it necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I was just there to mostly teach teach English, kind of a, a year after college, uh, learn more about China, see if I wanted to do anything long term there. So anybody who's there, who's kind of a foreigner, you're going to be surveilled at some level because they're, you know, especially back in 2008, the big thing back then was they were worried to death that there would be some kind of uh, foreign foreigners uh, doing a big pro-Tibet protest at the Olympics. That was the big thing that they were scared to death about because the the Communist Party is. They're, they're about face. I know we've heard that term a lot, probably. You know, face is about embarrassment. It's about your, how do you look in public? And so if you do a protest in China, they lose face. You know, the government loses face and that's very insulting to them. It, it kind of builds in this whole system of, of why they don't have free speech and why they don't allow public protest. But that was one thing they were very scared to death about. So they were basically surveilling, you know, all the people who were there on tourist visas who they had kind of let teach English over the years, they kicked them all out. And if you want to get a work permit, you basically had to leave Beijing to get one because uh, they didn't want really any kind of foreigners in Beijing that they couldn't control. So it's it's basically a giant surveillance state. I asked what kind of family she wanted. She said, a family like yours. Learn more about adopting a teen at AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. My guest is Will Coogan of the American Security Institute, and I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. We're talking about China. I asked, Will, is there any evidence of a Chinese spy network in the United States? And is Chinese interference in this year's U.S. elections something we should consider? 
We've heard about Russian interference in the past. Well, I haven't seen any, to, to answer the second question first, I haven't seen anything about China influencing this year's election. Not to say it's not going on or that it couldn't happen by any means. I just haven't seen anything. In terms of spy network in the United States, I, I think there's, there's a bigger one that people know about. And we're starting to see more and more of it at universities come to light. And, and here's a couple of things that, that I'll point to you. Um, so there was a report that came out just yesterday, in fact, that foreign governments, uh, that universities in America have underreported donations from foreign governments. And it's not just China. China's a big, a big player, uh, but also countries like the UAE or Qatar. So not exactly the necessarily the friendliest countries to, to the U.S., but they've been giving very heavily to universities. And China in particular has been one of the, the top givers sort of in this hidden way. And there's, there's been two ways that, that we've seen and, and that have been getting exposed recently. So one is called the Confucius Institute. And so a lot of universities, over 100 universities in America have, have had a Confucius Institute. And what that was is a little institute, like a little program at these universities. My university had one. And it was funded by the Chinese government. And again, it's, it's kind of about this soft power influence. So they would kind of encourage you to, to learn, you know, take Chinese history classes, learn Chinese language, which I studied in, in, in college. But of course, it's all designed towards giving you a, a good impression of what China is and the Chinese government. So there's a little bit of subtle influence there. Now, on the more concerning side, over the past year, we have seen several people being charged uh, by the federal government with essentially secretly working for the Chinese. And these are these are university professors. Even you know, the biggest name is the guy who was running Harvard's chemistry department. So obviously, it's a very serious department. They do some, some very high-tech uh, work there. And so this guy was charged, I think, back in February with, with secretly taking money from the Chinese and doing work for them. So what, what happened there is the Chinese government a few years ago had this, they created a program called the Thousand Talents Program. And essentially, they wanted to do outreach on the universities across the world, and particularly the United States. And the goal there is, if you go back to something we were talking about earlier with China's Made in China 2025 policy, where they want to increase and, and solidify their, their grasp of technology, you know, they want to go and they want to essentially steal technologies, cutting edge technologies and research from U.S. universities or tap into that if they can. So maybe uh, they will you know, try to conduct traditional espionage or maybe they will hire somebody on the side who's doing high tech stuff and say, hey, you know, do some research for us. Here's some money. Just don't report it. And you know, send us your research results. You know, do some work for us on the side. You know, just don't tell anybody. I think now a half dozen people that I've seen in the U.S., you know, Harvard, there's, uh, I think one or two guys in Arkansas have been charged with secretly working for the Chinese. So this is this is ongoing stuff. I think I just saw the latest indictment a couple of weeks ago. Um, in terms of the spy network in the United States, there's also a lot of Chinese grad students who work in these programs. And I'm not I'm not going to imply that that most of them work for the Chinese government by any means. But I will say this: they are certainly targets for the Chinese government, and the Chinese government can can play some pretty good cards there. Um, when I was when I was teaching English in China, I taught students who were going to go study in universities in America and Canada. And you know, I was just teaching them English; they're English already pretty good. But a lot of these uh, people, they so if you wanted to study in America, you had to pay the full sticker price at university, which is very expensive, uh, as you know. You know, this could cost fifty or sixty thousand dollars a year, and you know, a lot of you know Americans can't really a lot of Americans can't afford that. And but the Chinese were not going to get some kind of um, some kind of cut price deal because the universities wanted to charge them. Well. If you want to afford that, odds are your parents are either working for the party or they work for some kind of big business in China that, again, is going to have be very, very influenced by the party. Uh, any kind of big company in China, any kind of big Chinese company is going to have a liaison with the Communist Party. 
And so whether they like it or not, there are ways that they could then use that kind of relationship and say, hey, look, you know, I know your parents are funding this. It would really be bad. You know, your parents need this kind of stuff. So that there's always little almost like mafia-like ways that they can go and try to influence people, even people who just want to study some kind of uh, program here on their own in the United States and want nothing to do with their government in China. They, there, there are definitely ways that the Chinese intelligence apparatus can use to try to get these people to work for them. So they're all very, very, so certainly they're all targets for the Chinese government intelligence. Well, just to put it in context, would you say most Chinese who are in the United States are legitimate, doing the right thing, and have good intentions? I think so. I, I think it's a fair thing to say because I, I don't have any evidence to the contrary. And this is my experiences with, with uh, the Chinese people over there. You know, they're great people. Uh, they're very great people. Just a really bad government. So I think, to answer your question, I would, I would assume the best about any, any Chinese students sitting here. I wouldn't want to uh, imply otherwise. But we also have to be realistic and recognize that, mm-hmm. hey, you know, the government views them all as potential assets for their own intelligence collection. It always fascinates me how very wealthy Chinese want to come to America, get visas, build beautiful homes, put their kids through college, buy a big McMansion in the suburbs. They see the opportunities in America they don't see back home, and they want their kids to go through the American system. Yeah, there are quite a few that that are not happy with the Chinese government and want a better way of life, just like you know, many other people throughout history have come to America. And, and you know, that should that should certainly be supported. I mean, that's what we're all about as a country. So you know, I, I had friends growing up who whose parents immigrated from China or Taiwan, and you know, they just want a better life here, and you know, they didn't want anything to do with the government. So I think there's a lot of people who who do want that that better life, and who are very pro America and. And that's great. So you know that's that should always be welcomed. On top of all the incidents and the uncovering of spies in recent months, we've had a TikTok controversy. We had the closure of the Chinese consulate in Houston. Yeah, and that's just a few things. There are probably numerous other events that we should be alarmed about. Yeah, I think so. It's certainly a, a change of tone from from the the government, the U.S. government towards China. Uh, for a long time, there was kind of this, the, the general feeling of Washington, D.C., you know, it was not one party or the other, but the general feeling was, okay, if we let China into some of these international institutions and kind of bring that, give them a seat at the table, that that kind of will help open up their economy and that in turn will help open up and liberalize some of their political system. That was kind of the, the general hope and, and, and thought process. And so, you know, that's, you know, China got led into the World Trade Organization back in 2001. But here's the thing that, that I think people are realizing now is, China, you know, is not some small little country like Paraguay. This is a big, big country. And so essentially, they've got more leverage than some of these international institutions have against China. So they, they've essentially come to the party, drank all the booze and left. That, that kind of vibe where they are not being a, a very good guest in some of these institutions. And they're just trying to use it for their own gain, uh, their own gain for the Communist Party. And again, that's, that's not – I think we're finding that the goals of the Communist Party are just – uh, incompatible with the goals of uh, other countries in the world who support democracy and freedom. What's at stake in the coming presidential election this year? Both parties seem to have different approaches on how they deal with China. President Trump has been very strong in condemning some of these Chinese practices, and he's not slow to describe it as the China virus. <laughs> certainly, he is, not, <laughs> he is not shying away from, from being very, very confrontational with the Chinese you know, it's interesting because nobody's really pushed back against China for many years. So when he started doing it, I think a lot of people said, oh, this is kind of a breath of fresh air. 
Now, I'll, I'll clarify one thing. You know, we're not profit, so we cannot endorse any candidate. I will provide a little bit of analysis on, on the policies. So certainly this administration has been much tougher than Obama or Bush has been uh, with China. You know, the, a lot of the problems I, I talked about with China about stealing technology and so forth, they've been going on for years. I mean, they were talking about this stuff back when I was in college, you know, back in 2004, before when I was preparing to go to China. It's always been known about, but nobody's really done anything about it. They, they've kind of Everybody's been kind of afraid. So that, that's been a change of pace under this administration for sure. Now, both part, both candidates, so both obviously Trump says he's going to keep doing the same direction. And I've seen Joe Biden say the same thing, that he's going to be tough on China. If, if that's true, you know, if, if both people will be tough on China, that's great, because that's, that's the kind of thinking we need going forward is to not let these guys get away with stuff. Because the Communist Party will, if you give an inch, they'll take a mile. And again, their, their goals are very antithetical to the United States. And I think both parties have actually recognized that. Obviously, this being an election year, you have Republicans and Democrats warring on basically every single issue you could possibly think of. But but for what? And that is uh, the issue of China. So back in uh, back in May and June, Congress passed a bill. It was a human rights bill about the abuses going on in uh, Xinjiang province against the Uyghurs. And that was uh, overwhelmingly passed. I think only one person voted against it in Congress. So all of Congress, you know, far left to far right, agreed that this is bad and this needs to stop. And the bill, um, what it does is it imposes sanctions on Communist Party officials. So it's good. It's so that kind of bipartisanship is good. So certainly we're you know, we're hopeful that, however the election does go, that there will still be these policies that are that are really calling out the bad actors in China and being tough, uh, whether they're cheating on technology and trade uh, or they're doing human rights abuses. So you're also saying that we have to wake up to what China is up to. And if we don't, we could be walking into a financial and political disaster for America. Oh, totally. And again, the Chinese, we've seen some steps over the past few years where it, you know, historically they said, hey, look, we're not really big on, on the hard power, on the military stuff. But they've started to do things that are very concerning to their neighbors in Asia. I'll give you one big example. So in the South China Sea, there's been a big dispute over who controls that territory. It's, you know, it's big for countries like the Philippines or Vietnam, big with their fishing industries and their shipping industries. The Chinese have actually gone out and built islands, built islands with the military in the middle of the sea, and then claimed the islands and said, this is now Chinese territory, as well as all the all the area around it. So they started to do stuff, expansionist stuff with the military. Uh, they've been somewhat aggressive with, with U.S. flights and you know, our patrols in the area. So militarily, they're becoming more aggressive, which is very concerning. And again, if you, if you think about the long-term goals, I'll give you one example about something I think people will find pretty scary about China. So you know, here in the U.S., some companies, tech companies have been working on uh, facial recognition technology. And so we've got some pretty cool and benign applications of this. For example, if you like have an iPhone, it can, you can unlock your phone by you know, showing your face to the camera. It'll kind of recognize your face and say, okay, this is the, this is the user and it'll unlock. So that's kind of cool, right? Over in China, they now have 600 million cameras with facial recognition technology. And what they do with that is they can track people, track their movements in public, and all automate that kind of stuff through a database. Again, it's wow. a giant, giant surveillance state. And the Communist Party, again, it's all about control. You know, They want to have maintain power, maintain control over the population. So any kind of technology that we might create here for some kind of cool use or good use, you, go, you always got to think, is there some way that the Chinese government can twist that and use it in a very dystopian way? We're seeing more and more of that. So, you know, we again, we don't want to be relying on China. We don't want a war with China by any means. Um, hopefully it never comes to that. But we also want to limit the amount of expansionism that, that China does and, and certainly our reliance on China. 
uh, because it's it's going to be a growing problem throughout the rest of the century. You lived in China. Are Chinese people happy people? Did they express quietly distrust of the government to you? Any of them say, I can't wait to get out of this police state? <laughs> well, I think generally they're, they were very, uh, very friendly. They're very, very welcoming to foreigners. And they were generally very happy. You know, things were at the time, things were going very well with the economy. You know, the, the city of Beijing was changing immensely, uh, just the amount of investment that was coming in. So those were all very good things. And, and people were, were very optimistic about that. That being said, a lot of people, especially older people, were skeptical of the government. You know, if you just talk to cab drivers, they'd be like, yeah, they would tell you stuff essentially like, yeah, I know the government's full of it, but um, you know what? I'm making more money than I was, so eh, whatever. So right. again, there's there's no democratic process. So even if they had an opinion, they were kind of like, eh, whatever. Because uh, there's Circus no way. and bread. Yeah, they couldn't really. Exactly. Exactly. Circus and bread. And so I'll, I'll give you another example from a from a class I was teaching that will, will tell you. Uh, I, I think hopefully and maybe frighten you a little bit. So I was teaching an English class, and this is uh, outside of the university. So I had just sort of professionals in the workforce who were coming to this class just because they wanted to improve their English and, and maybe get a job with a foreign firm. And so the age range is varied. So I had people as young as, let's say, 20, and then people who were as old as their mid to late 30s uh, who were taking this class. And this is back in 2008. So we had a discussion at one point, and I, I didn't bring this up, but somebody brought this up. They, they brought up Tiananmen Square, you know, the 1989 massacre of the, the pro-democracy force. And so you're not allowed to talk about this in China. And in fact, if you go on, if you went on Google at the time and you went to Google Images and you searched for Tiananmen Square, all the images were blocked. They were blocked out. You couldn't, they were all broken links. You couldn't see images of Tiananmen Square. That's, that's the kind of censorship you would see on the internet. In fact, what, what people had to do, if they wanted to talk about it, they had to refer to June 4th, which is the day it happened. So they would call it 6-4 because the government can't really censor the number 64 because it's used so commonly. And so it, they had to use coded language to talk about it called 6-4 uh, for June 4th. And so in class, it was really scary because the people who were below the age of 25 at the time, they didn't really know what happened. The older people did. They would say, Leo Su, you know, for 6-4. And then people, like, people would either, they'd be like, oh, yeah, I know about that. I know what really happened then. But the younger people didn't know. And it was really scary. The people who were around 20 years old, they didn't know about what, what actually happened. And so it tells you that this kind of government suppression of information and you know, the truth can work. And that's very, that left me very sad because you know, it's only getting worse over there in China, I, I think, in, in terms of government control and, and surveillance of, of what people are allowed to think. And so, again, if you can control the information, what people see and what, the, what they learn about, then you control what they think. Again, the older people kind of knew about it because word of mouth back then was, uh, you know, people, I think a lot of people in the country knew about it. But the younger people, you know, they're not teaching the stuff in schools. You can't find about it on the internet. And so it was it was definitely working in terms of in, in the Communist Party's favor. The other unknown, the other variable is their economic strength. Uh, if they hit a roadblock in their development plans, there was a major recession or depression that could unleash a lot of monsters in China. Big time, big time. And, you know, the uh, the particular uh, worry in China from the Communist Party's point of view was always sort of the rural jobs. The cities in China were doing very well, and they continue to do very well. Uh, a lot of people are making money there and, and improving their standard of living, and so they're all pretty happy. But the people in the rural areas were not seeing that same kind of uh, growth. There was always a lot of potential unrest there, let's say. But if, if things do turn south in recession or depression, like you said, uh, yeah, you can see a lot, of, a lot more people being a lot more vocal about that and organizing more. So you're the American Security Institute. You're a new group, and uh, you're 
presenting a real picture in your view of what's going on in China and what Americans should be aware of. What's on your campaign agenda, Will, for the American Security Institute? Yeah, I mean, our general advocacy is uh, focus on reducing our reliance on China from an economic point of view for these critical supply chains. Um, so whether it's antibiotics, whether it's rare earth minerals, that's that's one big part of our advocacy is say, hey, let's let's not rely on China for this stuff. Let's find other ways, whether it's bringing jobs back to the U.S. and manufacturing here um, and providing support for that or you know, shifting your supply chain to other countries that are that don't have the same problems as the, the Chinese Communist Party do. And secondly, it's to, to kind of alert Americans to how much Chinese influence there is in America, because you, you kind of see you might see articles now and then of like, oh, this professor got arrested or you might see an article about, oh, the uh, the Red Dawn remake got changed so that it's not the Chinese invading the U.S. But I think people don't really see the bigger picture. So we're trying to, to paint that picture for them and say, hey, when you put the piece of the puzzle together here, um, here's what's really going on. Oftentimes very quiet because how the Chinese government operates, but it's 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 gone, it's progressed very far in this country. And so we just want to, you know, people to be aware of that. Well, I'm sure we'll be reading and seeing a lot about your group and yourself in the coming months, Will. It's just been a terrific pleasure talking to you. Fascinating. And I hope we get to do this again. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S., or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.